today's scripture come from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of, of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as his head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, everyone, let's ask the Lord to speak to us one more time by praying together. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand more of your word. It is a powerful book, but it is also a book in which we need your spirit to guide us in understanding and giving us insight and application to principles that will not only make our life full, but also be pleasing to you. And so, God, we pray that you will speak to us and that you will cover over the weakness of the one who delivers it. Father, we ask that today your word would speak to us so that we can be refreshed and renewed and that we would live out what is required of your holy law, not because by obeying it we become righteous, but because through your Son we have been already made righteous. Father, would you now speak to us, for we pray in your Son's precious name. Amen and amen. You know, there are two things that I know are true for most people. Number one, most of us do not like, do not like feeling incompetent or guilty. That's not the kind of feelings that we welcome whenever we encounter them through whatever situation that causes them to arise. Secondly, there is nothing that can quite make us feel incompetent and guilty at the same time than prayer. Prayer. Many of us don't pray. Even though as followers of Jesus, we know we're called to pray. And we may even genuinely believe in our hearts that prayer is such a good thing. But quite honestly, we don't do it. We don't do it because maybe we don't know how to do it. We feel incompetent. And so we don't actually pray. But because we don't actually pray, we feel guilty for not praying. Incompetence and guilt all Nicely wrapped in this one thing that we say we know is true and important, and yet we live it out as if it's false and unimportant. Prayer is one of those things that is so hard to live by. Now, don't misunderstand me. I include myself when I make this indictment on all Christians. Because I, for one, am not satisfied to the nature of my prayer life, as I imagine many of you are not satisfied with yours. And so, as I've been thinking about this topic personally in my life, I felt that it was perfect timing for us to, as a church to consider this very issue of prayer. And so we're going to take a look at what Paul says about prayer, <clears throat> and specifically what it says about God and ourselves and Jesus, in the hopes that not only would it compel you to want to pray more, but more importantly, it would inspire you in such a way to permanently change some routine habits so that prayer becomes a continuing presence in your life, thereby creating the presence of God lived out through your life, thereby giving you 
a means of blessing the world and blessing, more importantly, the God that you love. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share for you, with you, excuse me, from Ephesians chapter 1. And they are as follows. Number one, what prayer says about God. What prayer says about God. Number two, we're going to talk about what our lack of prayer says about us. And finally, we're going to end it with how Jesus restores our prayer. What prayer says about God, what our lack of it says about us. And finally, how Jesus restores it all. Okay, let's jump right in. First, what prayer says about God. Starting in verse 15, Paul says that because he heard of the Ephesians' faith and their love for the saints, i.e. other Christians, therefore he cannot stop praying for them. Now, what is interesting about this description of Paul's prayer is that it's so unlike the way that we typically think of prayer or how we usually pray prayers. Because when most of us think of prayer, we kind of see it as kind of like this spiritual 911 or what Pastor Tim Keller called flare prayers. You know, the kinds of things that you only do in emergency crisis situation, like when a person is in that he shoots up flares up in the night sky. I don't know if anyone is up there, but if you are, help! Right? But look at how Paul prays here. There's no desperate cry. There's no frantic words, but instead you see a man full of joy and thanksgiving as he prays. You see, when Paul hears about the Ephesians' faith in God and their love for one another, he is filled with so much gratitude that he cannot help but just burst out in prayer. Now, Paul is trying to help us understand about a nature and purpose of prayer that I don't think many of us understand or even realize you see prayer is not simply for those moments in our lives where we feel desperate lost or scared no 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 prayer should be the natural response when our lives are filled with thanksgiving and celebration and the fact that paul prays this way not only tells us something about how he understands prayer but it tells us more importantly about how he understands god let me ask you When you have something great happening in your life, some wonderful news that makes you so happy to be alive, something that makes you feel so grateful, what is your typical reaction? What do you typically do? Don't you let everyone know about it? You go on social media, you start making some phone calls, you start making those texts. Don't you go out of your way to share good news when good news comes into your life? Of course, we do it all the time. I know it happens in my life. You know, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but 12 years ago, no, 13, was it 12 or I can't remember. Please don't tell her. But when I proposed to my wife, Sarah, I clearly remember, aside from when it was, how she reacted. I got down on my knees and I was like, Sarah, I love you. Will you marry me? Right? And she said, yes. She screamed, she kissed and hugged me all within the span of two seconds. Yes, and then for the next i'm not kidding 20 minutes she didn't talk to me you know what she was doing she was she was texting before it was even as popular as it is today you know who she was talking to she was talking to best friend number one best friend number two she was talking to her sister she was talking to her cousin who's like her sister i mean she was just like texting nods she was telling everybody And here we see the same principle that Paul is trying to teach us when it comes to prayer. Paul is so excited about what he's hearing about the Ephesians' faith for God and their love for one another that he can't contain himself, that he feels compelled to tell the one person that he knows would just so love hearing this news. And it's none other than who? God himself. 
Paul is trying to help us understand what prayer should be telling you about God. And that is God is not some cosmic being who only wants to hear from you whenever you're just in a real bind or when you're in a real crisis only. And other than that, don't bother him. Leave him alone. He's got better things to do. No, Paul is trying to tell us by the kind of prayer he's lifting up for the Ephesians that God is a God who genuinely cares for you to the point where he wants to know the little gritty details. I mean, can you imagine If Sarah didn't tell one of her closest friends of the engagement, I mean, she told me, like, babe, I'm sorry, I got to tell these people because if I don't, they're going to be angry at me. They're going to be so hurt. How much more, Paul would say, would your God be so wounded and so hurt for you not to pour out your heart, not just in moments of crisis, not just in moments of despair, but in moments of celebration and gratitude and joy. God expects to be in that inner circle of your community. In fact, he expects for you to see him as the most important love who cares the most about what happens in the most significant as well as in the most mundane matters of your life. Just like a close friend expects to know everything in your life, God expects you to come to him and bring every facet of your life, good and bad, in every moment that you live on this earth. And yet for most of us, that simply isn't the case, is it? So many of us are so much more comfortable talking to a random stranger on a couch of the things that we dream about and care about. So many of us are so easy to put on social media, such, a, such an unrelational, such a cold platform to talk about all the things rather than to spend five minutes alone with God, giving joy, giving thanks, because we are so confident that he truly does love you with such an extent that he does. To where it leaves us with the question, why do we struggle so much with prayer knowing that this is how Scripture reveals your God is towards you? Why do we struggle so much to really go before Him? First thing, for, first foremost, whether in the me evening or whether it be in the morning, whether it be in the midst of your day-to-day life, why do we find it so hard? Well, Paul's going to tell us in verses 17, 18, and 19 why that is so, and he's going to help us identify what gets in the way for us to really not only believing, but therefore living out this call to live prayerfully. And this leads me to my next point, what our lack of prayer says about us. You know, one of the interesting things that we notice in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians are the specific things that he prays for in verses 17 to 18. Because when you read 17 and 18, we kind of scratch our heads when we wonder, why in the world is Paul praying for these specific things for these particular Christians? Take a look at 17 and 18 again. See if you can pick it up. Starting in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Why is Paul praying for these things to the Ephesians? Because remember, these Ephesians, there's some very mature Christians. After all, isn't the very reason why he's even praying for them in the first place is because he's heard from others of how strong their faith in God is, how wonderful their community is because they're genuinely actively loving one another. These are people who are on top of their spiritual game. And yet he prays for spiritual needs that we would normally envision for someone who's struggling in their faith, someone who's not doing well in their faith at all. And yet Paul prays for these things for these kinds of high caliber spiritual people. The question is why? I'll tell you why. Paul is trying to teach us something that we so easily forget. 
And that is, no matter how godly you are, no matter how mature you believe you are, no matter how much you've walked with God and how much you think you've arrived in spiritual depth and maturity, there is never a moment where you do not desperately need prayer. Again, no matter how godly you think you are, no matter how much you've changed, no matter how much mature, there is never a moment where you do not desperately need prayer. In fact, I would argue that it's in those moments when you're doing very well spiritually that you need prayer the most. Because we all know what happens when life is starting to work for our good, right? We all know when things are going well. We all know how when things are changing for us for the better that we need to be extra vigilant, right? You guys have had that chronic struggle usually at our age by now, whether it's our gut that's growing, whether it's our thighs that are getting bigger. We go on these exercise routines, these diets, and then when we start losing the weight, what do we need to be? We need to be vigilant more than ever because we all know the propensity that happens when real growth and change is going in our lives. We can fall back. We can fall back into our old ways, into old temptations, and really hit rock bottom and hit failure. And that same principle applies when it comes to living the Christian life. It's when you are growing leaps and bounds, it's when you're changing and transforming, that you have to be uber vigilant of not falling into certain spiritual traps that could revert you back into the ways that you were before. Have you ever talked to someone who would lose tons of weight and then they go back to it. You know how discouraged? They're more discouraged then than they were before they lost the weight. And that's how our enemy works. He knows that if he allowed a little success to come into your life, but then just smash you down because you just kept your guard down, because you assumed too much of the victory that you were enjoying, that he knows that it might keep you from wanting to get back up. Harder than it would be than when you first took that step of faith to change for the first time. And as a result, Paul wants us to be aware. Be careful. As you grow, as you change, as you mature, be on the lookout and seek prayer. And do the work of prayer. Because there are spiritual forces at work that will seek to undermine you. These spiritual threats. In fact, he tells us indirectly some of these threats, three of them to be exact, through the things that he's praying for the Ephesians. They are seen through the words hope, inheritance and power hope inheritance and power let's uh, go through them first hope starting in verse 18 paul prays that the ephesians would have a spirit of wisdom specifically prays that they would have a knowledge of god that will quote have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them now what in the world is he saying with that odd statement well i think we can figure it out if we zero in on that word hope Hope. Now, hope is one of those tricky words because it's such a difficult word to really conceptualize in terms of what it really means. It kind of has a very vague, a very nebulous uh, definition to where we can't really capture in concrete words what it means. Okay, But if we consider the other word that he associates the word hope with, I think we can figure out what he's saying. And in fact, we come to find that it's consistent to what the Bible connects hope with. What other word does Paul connect hope with? It's heart, right? All throughout scripture, you see this concept of hope being connected to heart. For example, Proverbs 13, starting in verse 12, we read, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, obviously, heart is not referring to the actual circulatory organ that's pumping blood throughout your body. What is heart? 
heart is simply put something that makes you willing to give all that you have, something that you're willing to forsake at all costs so that you could acquire something that you currently don't possess. I don't know why, but to this day, every time I come across this understanding of the word heart in the Bible, my mind transport back to 1997 during the NBA championship finals when the Chicago Bulls were defending their title against the Utah Jazz. And that was a crazy series because if you remember in game five, Michael Jordan that night had extreme food poisoning. It was really bad. I mean, the guy was like vomiting between timeouts. He had like 103 fever. And yet somehow, some way, the man scored 38 points to where he led the Bulls in winning that game, eventually leading, winning the title again. And all throughout the game, the commentators, you know what they keep saying? Over and over they go, Jordan has heart. Jordan has heart. Jordan has heart. The guy had heart. Jordan was willing to sacrifice everything, even his health, to produce something he was so sure of. That's what it means to have hope. It's to have heart. It's to have a stubbornness to not give up, to hold on, even in the midst of such hopeless situation. Now, the only reason why Paul would pray for this specific thing is because he knows that even someone to the spiritual caliber of the Ephesians could suffer from momentary lapses of what? Disheartened hopelessness and i'm sure all of us in here can attest to that experience in our own lives right of course we can how can we not we live in a broken world to where as we engage in it it feels like we have heart sickness heart sickness something akin in spiritual form to food sickness or stomach sickness or what what did what did jordan have yeah the stomach flu, right? It, we, we just want to just do nothing. You guys ever have food poisoning, right? Where you just don't want to do anything. You don't want to be around anyone. You just want to give up on life. You just want to you know, throw out a white flag. That's how we feel spiritually. When we encounter so much resistance, so many trials, so many tribulations, that our heart really just feels like it's sick, paralyzing us from doing nothing except just the bare minimum, just the bare minimum just so that you can keep going without being further disappointed or further destroyed by the despair and the disappointments that you go through in life. This is a common experience that many people have where many of us have no hope in such a way that would compel us that life is worth having the kind of heart that Jordan had the night when he defeated the Utah Jazz. And when you get to that point, when your hope begins to waver, the first thing that's going to go is your prayer life. That's the first thing that's going to be done with when it comes to your spiritual disciplines. You simply will not pray. Oh, you'll do other things as a coping mechanism. You'll go to other people, whether they be friends, whether it be a random stranger that you're getting counselor uh, advice by by the hour, or maybe a random stranger to whom you can have some intimacy for a couple minutes so that you could forget. Or you might go to substances that could alter your state of mind, giving you a false sense of freedom, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, or maybe it's just numbing yourself for hours on end, binge-watching on Netflix or Prime or K-drama, whatever your fancy might be. This is something that we tend to do as our refuge. Hardly any of us would go to prayer as a way of finding hope and peace in hopeless moments. And this is why Paul prays that the Ephesians' hope in God would not waver because he knows, just like with all of us, 
one of the greatest temptations we constantly fall into is to believe that life is sometimes just not worth having the same level of heart and determination that some people might have to win a championship. We just think, let's just sit on the bench, let's just ride life out, and then one day we'll be set free from this miserable existence. And once you get to that level of hopelessness, it results in the second threat that Paul prays against when he says uh, in verse 18 that the Ephesians will, quote, know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, commentators are a little bit divided on what he means by that statement, the glorious riches or inheritance of the saints. Some commentators think that he's referring back to the community that Jesus created for them through his death on the cross, the reconciled community, the church, the church community, the church family. Other commentators think that he's referring to an actual like spiritual riches, treasures, when God establishes a kingdom on earth in the second coming. I am convinced that he's referring to the reconciled community the church family, the church community, okay? Which means the only reason why Paul would say this prayer for the Ephesians is because he knows that when you become hopeless, it can easily result in forgetting how rich and blessed you are for the community that God placed you in through Jesus. In other words, you can go through so much despair, so much heart sickness and hopelessness that you feel like you have no community, even with people who at one point you felt very, very close to. Consider these words from Pastor Tim Keller when he writes this, quote, one of the marks of affliction is isolation. A barrier suddenly goes up between us and even our closest friends. One reason is that you, the sufferer, suddenly sense a new gulf between yourself and almost anyone who has not experienced what you are going through. People who you once felt shared a common experience with you no longer do. Severe suffering turns you into a different person, and some of the people that you once felt affinity for no longer look the same to you. When we suffer trials and tribulations, heart sickness, hopelessness, we forget how rich we are in the community that God has given us. And as a result, we risk of falling into the deception that we have no community whatsoever. And as a result, prayer becomes way more difficult than it was when you just felt hopeless. It actually becomes even harder, as hard as that is to imagine. Why? Because the less you are in community with God's people, the less you are praying to God. Again, the less you are in community with God's people, the less you are praying to God. And Christian, this is something we need to grasp because I feel that so many of us have such a wrong misconception about prayer because for many, we think prayer is a personal, private matter just between you and the Lord, no one else, right? Wrong, wrong. Prayer is not only a barometer that indicates the intimacy that you have with God. It's also a barometer that indicates the intimacy that you have with other believers. In fact, it's just one barometer, just one. And it's the same one. Some of you may not know this, but I have an older brother. I love my older brother. And um, I know he loves me, I think. (laughs) But we're not close. We're not close at all. And my mom, ever since I was a young adult, have always said to me, you talk to Joe? You talking to your brother? And I would always say, no, too busy. And ever since I left the house when I was around 20, she says, why don't you talk to your brother? He's your brother. Don't you love your brother? You know, your brother loves you. Why don't you talk to him? Spend some time. You guys are brothers. You should be close. And for years, I just dismissed this as one of the 
you know, routine nags that all mothers have to give to their adult kids. And I just felt, okay, whatever. But it wasn't until I had kids of my own that I understood why that was so important to her. You know, even though they're very young now, my children get into fights. And I've seen distance growing between them. But here's what was so odd. As distance would grow and maybe even fester, changing the intimacy between my children, I've noticed it would do something else. It would change the level of intimacy with my kids too. When kids would be distant with one another, my kids, I noticed it would also create an odd distance between me and them. And it really bothered me. It was as if I felt like I was the father of two different families little instead of two different kids in one family. And I could totally see that if my kids' distance grew older with them, they could interpret my intimacy with one child as disfavor with the other, thereby increasing the distance between them even more. See, one of the reasons that you may not be aware of why you have such a hard time praying is because you're not in community. You're not spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not cultivating. You're not fellowshipping. You're not nurturing relationships that would strengthen and revitalize your walk with God. Has it ever occurred to you why Jesus says in one of the gospels, if you're offering a sacrifice to the Lord, but you have knowledge of a brother being against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. Why does he say it's basically pointless to pray to him when there's no relationship? You know why? Because that prayer you're offering to God isn't genuine. It isn't strong. It isn't even there. It's not even real prayer. If you're struggling in prayer, maybe what you need to focus on as a priority isn't to simply just pray. Maybe your priority should also be strengthening your relationships with the people that you're in community with. Because if you don't, it will lead you to the third and final threat that Paul is praying against that he encapsulates with the third and final thing that he's praying for. In verse 19, Paul prays that the Ephesians would realize how great God's power is towards those who believe. Now again, The only reason why Paul would pray this for the Ephesians is because it is possible to doubt that God's power is for those who believe. Now, notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say that it's possible for those to not believe that God has power. Rather, he says it's possible for those who believe to lose faith that God has power for them, for them. And what that essentially means is it is very possible, Christian, for you to genuinely think that God has power. But it also means it's very possible for you to think that God does not use that power for you. It's so easy to believe God has power. It's not so easy to believe that God uses that power for your good, for your favor, for your flourishing. And the reason why you can get there is because of a scenario that begins like this. You're in a desperate situation. I'm really desperate to the point where you pray. Even though you feel hopeless, even though you're isolated, the situation just demands a a Hail Mary. And so what the heck? I'm just going to pray, God. And you do. And the unthinkable happens. Nothing. Nothing. Now, the isolation and the hopelessness that you felt before you prayed metastasizes and creates a false belief after you pray that says God 
does not care about me. He cares about so-and-so whose situation was similar to mine, and God answered that person's prayer. But when it comes to me, oh, well, he doesn't care about me. And as a result, in your mind, God becomes very blurry to the point where you start thinking, am I blurry in God's eyes? To the point where he can't even make me out? To where he doesn't even know who I am? It's one thing to say you believe that God loves you, but it's quite another to genuinely feel that he loves you personally. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why we don't pray is because we genuinely feel, whether we admit it or not, that God has neglected us. And of course, that doesn't get there right away. You lead up to that by first being hopeless, by isolating yourself from community, and then disappointment and now here you are i am forgotten god does not give me any personal attention or personal affection because the power we assume will be evidence that he is with us is suspiciously suspiciously missing in our lives what are the three things that says about our lack of prayer it says three things our lack of prayer says three things about us number one We're without hope. Number two, no one cares for us. We have no community. And number three, God loves everyone but me. (laughs) He neglects me. What do we do about this? How do we overcome this? This leads me to my last point. How Jesus restores our prayer. In the last verses of this passage that we're looking at, Paul shifts his focus by talking about what God the Father does for his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, first, God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 20, and seats him at the right side of him. God has given all authority and dominion and power to him, verse 21. God has given Jesus the name above every name, verse 21. God has put all things under his feet, and now he is the head of the church, verse 22. Here Paul is describing what God the Father does for our Savior Jesus Christ that makes him praiseworthy. Now that's crazy. You know why? Because this is the same Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified, prayed the most hopeless, lonely, Loneliest and powerless prayer of all. Do you guys remember where it happened? The Garden of Gethsemane? Let me refresh your memory. This is Mark 14, starting in verse 32. We read, They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? Keep watching, pray, so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say Jesus on his last night on earth went through the most grueling miserable prayer any human being has ever prayed he was the only person who ever experienced what we think we experience that keeps us from praying He experienced true hopelessness. He experienced true isolation. He experienced true neglect from God. 
And the question is, why would the father allow his son, his only beloved begotten son, to go through this? You know the answer. So that he could undermine the one thing, the one and only thing that causes hopelessness, isolation, and neglect. Sin. By dying on the cross for our sins as our Savior substitute. See, the Bible tells us that sin is like a disease. And like any life-threatening disease, it manifests in certain kinds of life-despairing symptoms. Such as, sin creates a broken world that creates hopelessness. Sin creates tension, misunderstanding, selfishness, bullying, passive aggressiveness, jealousy that makes us want to isolate ourselves from others. Sin creates distance between you and God. Where in fact, you're the one who's wandering away from him, not him neglecting you. To where he would be justified in neglecting you if he wanted to. Don't you see, the problem of sin is the ultimate reason why you cannot pray. Meaning the reason you are hopeless, the reason you isolate yourself, the reason you feel neglected but aren't is because of sin. One of the things we forget, Christian, is that sin is not some private moral problem. It is a comprehensive cosmic problem. Consider these words from theologian Cornelius Plantinga. He writes, the whole range of human miseries from restlessness and estrangement through shame and guilt to the agonies of daytime television, all of them tell us that things in human life are not as they ought to be. Sin corrupts powerful human capacities, thought, emotion, speech, and act so that they become centers of attack on others or of defection, of neglect. Moreover, moreover, excuse me, the veins of sin interlace through most of the rest of what is wrong in our lives, through birth disorders, disease, accidents, and nuisances. Thousands of third world children die daily from largely preventable diseases. Out of laziness or complacency, certain grown-ups fail to prevent them. Thousands of first world children are born drug addicts. Their mothers have them hooked them in the womb. Some people with sexually transmitted diseases knowingly put new partners at terrible risk. It happens every day. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. Sinful life is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous character of genuine human life. End quote. Until we recognize the seriousness of sin, we will never understand, let alone appreciate the work of Jesus to undermine sin. But conversely, the moment you recognize and accept how sin is the source of all problems, including our hopelessness, our isolation, our sense of being neglected, then and only then will we come to feel the weight of Paul's words. 21 and 23. Hear it again. Far above this Jesus is all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, Jesus, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things of the earth, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't you see? Jesus is the means of activating your prayer life because Jesus is the one who undermines the very threats that try to neutralize your prayer life. When you understand that Jesus is who he is, He is the Lord of all. He is the Savior of those who would embrace him in faith, repenting of their sins, making him the Lord of their lives. All of those three threats that I mentioned in my second point are completely gone. First, 
You'll never be truly hopeless because you know that Jesus saved you from the ultimate hopeless situation of all, your condemnation of hell. And because he did, secondly, you'll understand that your suffering isn't the worst suffering out there. But Jesus' suffering was, and you can share the joy that you have in being a beneficiary of that suffering with others who have benefited from that suffering as well, creating a community. And as you create community and you live together and prioritize that, all of a sudden, who you are, your uniqueness, your gifts come out. Showing you that God is manifesting his particular grace gift in you for the good of the community. Do you see? The only way you can deal with your prayerless life is essentially coming back to Jesus. It doesn't come through any other means. It doesn't come through any other person. It only comes through Jesus. And so here's my question. Have you gone to Jesus? Have you gone to the one who can free you from the very things that is enslaving you from a prayerless life? That is my hope and prayer. That is my prayer for myself, and that is certainly my prayer for all of you. The question is, will you go to Jesus? That's all you need to do. Go to Jesus. Let's go to him now. Father, we ask that you would help us to really hear today's word. Lord, it's so easy for us to look at certain circumstances in our lives and conclude that we have no hope, that we have no community, and we have no God who truly loves us. Lord, would you help us to see the deception of all that by looking to the one who is the truth of God, the one who claimed to be the truth our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I come to you now praying for this congregation. Father, many of us are struggling, even as we have heard these words preached today. Minister to my grieving brothers and sisters and be with them. And Lord, be with all of us as we strive to live a life of prayerful living. It is something that we feel so inadequate and we feel so condemned because we lack in doing it. Lord, we pray that in our encounter of you, Jesus, that once again we will be reminded and refreshed to go before boldly and without fear to the one who is the true God who loves, the true God of power, the true God of grace, who is community himself. Help us to live out this principle and let it begin now and continue forward in the form of faithful prayer. Would you hear us now and would you receive it we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.